so that a warrant is issued before access is given to email. Civil liberties and digital rights groups have welcomed the recommendations, which include the extension of privacy protection to non-US nationals. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Thank you, Etienne. The time is three minutes after eight o'clock. Hello, everyone. This is Money for Nothing. Yes, very good morning to you. In the headlines this morning, at least in terms of the money stories, Alibaba wants to get its payments provider, Alipay, back into the fold. And that could be delaying the IPO. Win Macau beats earnings estimates, and Ford gets a new CEO. In market moving data, U.S. manufacturing beats estimates. Consumers spend rather aggressively, we'd say. And Internet stocks gain for a third day, but up against that, housing claims moved a bit higher, and that creates a little bit of nervousness ahead of tonight's non-farm payrolls report. But first, a little touch of what's to come. I suppose this is not a terribly well-kept secret, uh, but we do, we do have an announcement to make today. That's Bill Ford, the chairman of the Ford Motor Company, and the announcement is... Effective July 1st, uh, Alan has elected to retire uh, as president and CEO and member of our board, um, and our board of directors met and has elected Mark to fill all those same shoes. Yes, so Alan Mulally out as the chief executive officer and Mark Fields in. Not really big news, but it is happening a little bit earlier than expected. And so it's kind of interesting. We'll get some of the comments and, and talk about superstar CEOs and how they exit gracefully from the limelight. So that coming up in just a moment. Also, in the bigger picture, what about this rotation from growth to value? You know, we're not going to get the new highs with utilities leading the market. Yeah, that's uh, Walter Todd from Greenwood Capital. He says, all well and good. I understand the rotation and the need for it. But if we're expecting to get to new highs, it's not going to be happening with uh, the gains that we've seen in utility stocks. So we've got some interesting guests coming up. Uh, would you sell in May and go away? David Gaud of Edmund de Rothschild Asset Management will be along for our markets discussion. Steve Wang from the Reorient Group uh, with us in our studios as well. And we'll be talking to Bill Nader the Jockey Club, about the business of horse racing. So let's get started first uh, with the Asian markets. Uh, We see a little bit of a mixed picture, but stocks down in Japan, the Nikkei off 35 points at 14,449. In Australia, the market is also just a tad lower. In Seoul, the Kospi is up a couple of points at 1964. Dollar yen, not much change there, 102.29. The euro is now at 1.386 U.S. dollars. So one of the interesting stories uh, hitting the news this morning, and this we have to credit the uh, folks at the Wall Street Journal, Alibaba reportedly wants to reclaim a stake in Alipay. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reports that in doing so, it would significantly raise the value of Alibaba. So this may have major implications for the IPO, or at least in the perceived longer-term value of the company. Alipay processes Alibaba's e-commerce payments. It was taken out 
up by Alibaba founder Jack Ma in 2011, and some of the largest shareholders weren't too happy at that time. He said it was necessary under mainland regulations in order for Alipay to get a financial license. So investors might be asking the question now, why is it okay to fold it back in? On Wall Street, stocks ended little change for the day. Data showed an increase in jobless claims before the uh, labor report tonight. The S&P 500 was down less than 0.1% at 1883. The Dow was down 21 points at 16,558. The Nasdaq, though, was up 0.3%. And as we mentioned, Internet stocks up a third day. In terms of the bond market, the yield on the 10-year Treasury was down three basis points to 2.61%. Let's go back to Walter Todd. He was asked about this move from growth stocks into value. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely seeing a lot of churn in the market, and you've seen a a rotation of leadership, as you alluded to, out of kind of momentum growth stocks into more value-oriented stocks. I mean, that's that's very clear over the past month. Um, What I would tell you is that, you know, we're not going to get to new highs with utilities leading the market. So we made that point at the beginning, but he fleshes it out a little bit there. He acknowledges the recent action, but he hopes for better. While I can appreciate some mean reversion and and the fact that certain areas of the market got overvalued, like biotech, like some of the social media stocks, and and needed to come in, I think that's ultimately a healthy thing. On the the flip side, utilities were the worst performing sector in 2013, and they're they're playing some catch-up. But if the economy is going to improve as we think it will, you know, utilities are not going to be the leadership group. So we need to see some other areas of the market. You're starting to see energy a little bit pick up some steam. Uh, we need to see industrials uh, continue. Uh, we need to see financials catch a bid uh, to to kind of corroborate what we think we're seeing in the economic data. Applications for jobless benefits unexpectedly climbed to a nine-week high last week, but consumer spending surged in March by the most in about five years, and the ISM Manufacturing Index was up to 54.9 in April from 53.7 in the prior month. So good news on that. As to the jobs report tonight, economists expect 215,000 new jobs added in April. That would be the most since November. Okay, a quick word on Ford now from the chairman, Bill Ford. If you look back at the history of of our company, we've had very few, maybe never, uh, have we had a planned and smooth transition all the way back to my great-grandfather. And so this this is a big deal. It's a big deal. He refers to the ease with which Mr. Mulally is stepping down. Alan obviously is a Hall of Fame CEO, but a lot of Hall of Fame CEOs have a tough time letting go. And I think one of the, the great aspects of, of, of this transition is that Alan uh, is not having those issues. So not having those issues, although we did expect this to be happening later in the year, and now it's happening on the 1st of July. So that's kind of the backdrop. Uh, we've got some Win Macau uh, news, which I'll bring to you later uh, when we get to our discussions. And let's start those discussions now. David God, a senior fund manager at Edmund Rothschild Asset Management, with us in our studios. Good morning. Good morning. So it's a very peculiar environment at the moment, Uh, different things happening in the West uh, than here. First, your overall appetite for equities at the moment. Well, it's quite strong, actually. And uh, I mean, this debate between, you know, growth names, value names, uh, we think that one has to look uh, probably at a bit of a longer term horizon, because uh, what's going on in particular in Europe right now is extremely interesting. 
and this trend of M&A, for instance, you know, this restructuring of a lot of large capitalization and the expected improvement in return on equity we may see across Europe will lead to, uh, you know, a stronger earnings momentum. And if I had one wish, you know, being based here in Asia, would be to see the, the Asian corporates to start to follow the footsteps of the, why don't the European. We see, why don't we see that much M&A out here? Well, I think there's a question of uh, valuation for the good assets in Asia. I mean, they are not that cheap at this point. The second thing, uh, in particular in China, is that you need a political decision, you know, because most of these assets are held by the state. And this could be seen as a negative point, but that could be also an extremely positive one. Let's imagine, you know, that the state decide to uh, actually uh, encourage uh, the SOEs to restructure, to privatize assets, and, and that could lead to a massive re-rating. And this is probably what we're going to see first in Europe and maybe at a later stage in Asia, let's hope. This shift, this rotation from the growth areas into more value, while it has happened um, uh, to a certain degree out here, it just seems that, particularly with Hong Kong and China, most themes don't work for more than a few days. Even that theme, if you tried to go into some of the old economy stocks in China, you know, you got killed. Um, you know, even power assets, it was at 80, it went to 58. Uh, uh, now it's popped up a little bit. Uh, even the utilities here, not really not giving you a lot of return. No, that's true. That's, that's why you need to focus on the structural aspects. And uh, I'll just, again, back to this idea of what's going on in Europe. You know that for uh, a lot of major capitalization in Europe, there are already the return on equity since 2007 has dropped by 50 to 80%, which means there is a lot to catch up if they restructure properly. The same thing can be said in Asia. I mean, look at the average operating margin for the past five, six years. It's been declining constantly. The return on equity has been coming down as well significantly, especially in China. Let's now imagine again, you know, that there's some restructuring taking place and some reforms. And we feel like the market at this stage has priced absolutely zero value to those changes. I mean, look at China, all the announcements, uh, you know, the stock exchange cooperation, look at the mutual recognition for the funds. Nothing works. It, it doesn't work at this time. It's not knowledge. It it's not knowledge. Yeah, people don't want to put money on the table for these elements. But so you're saying you, you have to be patient. Uh, there is value there. Go out and uh, and get it. But then uh, you just have to expect that it's not going to uh, show you strong returns in the short term. No, absolutely. The summer may not be that rewarding at this stage. But for those who can actually project themselves a bit longer, there's definitely some return to expect. And what about the implosion fears in China? Because that's also a big weight. It, it seems to stop a lot of uh, investors from uh, wanting to take the plunge into China stocks. And of course, Hong Kong is just weighed down by the whole complex. Yeah, I remember we had already a nice debate, actually, uh, with you uh, quite some time ago, you know, about this credit crunch and crisis potentially. Well, it, it, you know, it and hasn't gone away. You come on about once a month and, uh, you know, it's just one of these these massive overhangs that you can't get away from. Yeah, but then again, I mean, we, I mean, we, we, we acknowledge the negative parts, all the issues that we're facing. Then on the other end, we should consider the solution that have been brought forward by the states, by the provinces to answer basically those defaults in China. And so far, there's been actually not lethal uh, outcome, you know, that really kill the economy. Uh, answers are brought in. And then all the, the development I mentioned about the reforms, you know, and uh, again, back to this idea, for instance, of the Shanghai free trade zone, if we are able to set up a structure, uh, a financial supermarket where you're going to implement actually proper risk measurement, where you're going to, that's going to deflate all those bubbles existing in China and slowly it's going to heal the market. 
Let's bring in Steve Wong sitting there next to you from the Reorient Group. Uh, Steve, good morning. And, Hi, good morning. Uh, and, and David, stay with us. Uh, we'll have a little bit uh, further discussion about uh, China. You said uh, although industrial production is weakening a little bit, there are some areas that have done pretty well. Um, auto is not bad. Cement, mm-hmm. uh, okay. Glass, okay. Um, does this give you an indication that, um, you know, if you're discerning, you can still do okay in China? The overall picture isn't looking that great. I mean, you, uh, as, a, as a whole, I mean, everything is slowing down quite significantly. I mean, this year, we only have, in, for the first time since global financial crisis, the single-digit growth in the top line, and that's really pushed down the bottom line as well. And I think the only way we can go about this, you know, picking out sector for our investors really is to look at fundamentally which is growing, which is shrinking. And on the, on the start with the bad news, I mean, the really bad news is the coal mining washing industry is terrible. And then not Sorry, only could you, could, I just didn't quite catch that. Could you say the, that again? The coal mining and washing industry is terrible because they are seeing uh, like 10, 10, 15 percent drop in, t- in their, their top line. Coal and mine. You said coal, coal mining, mining and, yeah. and washing. Yeah, that is the classification used okay. by the Chinese industry. All right. And also oil refinery, I mean, as we see, like, you know, production of industrial activities has been coming off. So oil demand has been somewhat weakened. And, you know, uh, steel mining is also steel uh, metal smelting is one that has been really being hit hard. And these are the, some of the old industry that we really advise investors just to get and stay away because there is so much headline risk among those sectors. But so, like so what you mentioned about automobiles, I think specialized equipment, some of the new stuff that, you know, there's really seen some kind of interest, M&A perhaps as well, I think, on those sectors could be interesting. Hmm. Again, the question I, I put earlier to David, uh, that there's just a big flashing red light with the debt uh, load, uh, the overhang, the fact that a lot of the wealth management products are coming due this year. Mm-hmm. We may see uh, an increase in defaults. The mainland government has already said it will allow that. Uh, the currency has been going down. These are all good things longer term, but in the short term, they, they don't augur for... Uh, good market performance or short-term growth? No, I think the short-term wise, there's there's tons of headline risk, and and I think over the weekend, uh, over the holiday, we saw the the attack in Xinjiang also is uh, going to weigh on general foreign sentiment towards Chinese. So, market. Steve, would you say that you know this is a case of the stock market getting it right? There are problems there. That's why people are not going uh, into these companies uh, with a long-term commitment. Uh, sure. I mean, I think the market is definitely pretty clear in terms of information flow. And I think uh, uh, the rebound that in the, we're anticipating for the second quarter isn't coming through as quickly as we have seen in the last summer when it first started coming on your shows. So I think the second quarter might come out to be, again, not as sexy as what we economists have liked it to be. So this is just going to be way, really weight on the market sentiment for so some back, time. So back to know. David, because he's he's a buyer. He's, he's uh, on the buy side. Uh, he has to buy stocks for uh, a living. Uh, you know, one of the things that had been working last year was these the, the real growth companies. And so then <clears throat> this year, the I'd say one of the biggest themes of this year, um, or at least over the past uh, six weeks, has been the sell-off in the fast-growing companies. So what do you buy? Well, I think, yeah, you're right. You need to a more balanced portfolio, and you need probably to focus more on distress assets. And again, you know, back to my comparison with Europe, look at uh, what's going on with Alstom of France currently. You know, this is a state asset which was bailed out, which is with a heavy burden of debt, so a very delicate situation with a French 
state which is extremely uh, involved in its management and uh, very strict regulation. Now you're seeing suddenly GE and Siemens chasing that asset. And that brings me back to the SOEs in China and some of these valuable assets which the market at this stage has absolutely zero perception on it, positive perception, doesn't give it any value. If we start to unlock this, if we start to restructure some of those assets, then suddenly you're going to see the market chasing it. And that's okay, why. so I'll give you some, uh, some state-owned uh, distressed assets in China <laughs> that just go from bad to worse, the shipping companies. Uh, so you take something like China Costco, but you can look at, at any of them. Just, these are, these are um, companies that were valued, um, you know, uh, nine, but ninety percent higher before they're down. You know they're down ninety to ninety-five to ninety-six percent, and yet still they just. <laughs> continue to move lower. No, no, you need to be selective and you need some restructuring of those assets. And this is what happened to Alstom. So it's, it's a long process. I totally agree with that. And not all those assets will be saved in the end. But that means that for people like us, you know, can help in selecting those assets. All right. There so, is value so, to be made. So put your head on the chopping block. Give us a, <laughs> give us a couple of names in China that um, are deep value. They, they, are, they are distressed, but they offer good value at the moment because of you know, price is a great equalizer. If the price is right, then you should buy it. Well, I think some uh, electrical equipment, you know, so power equipment makers are extremely interesting in, in China. Those who are involved in the nuclear uh, programs are uh, quite cheap at the moment. Uh, I would say the same, or we would say the same of the energy uh, chain, you know, the big names like Sinopec, PetroChina. Uh, let's assume that tomorrow PetroChina makes some announcement, you know, tr- starting to restructure the way uh, Sinopec did it already. You're definitely going to see a re-rating. Those assets are so cheap at the moment. Okay. Um, all right. So let's just take a look at, uh, at the latest uh, action here in markets and see if we can get uh, any kind of a read. Uh, gold dropped uh, down uh, to $1,284 an ounce. So we saw a bit more of a sell-off in gold. Oil prices, $107.76. Uh, energy prices have been working. Uh, we, we've, uh, did we just lose a guest? Um, or uh, is Bill Nader with us still in the studio? Yeah, okay, we're going to get to this segment in, uh, in just uh, two minutes at uh, 8.22. So we see, we see oil prices. Uh, energy has been actually performing a little bit better here of late. You can probably, um, uh, you know, congratulate Vladimir Putin on that, I suppose. But, uh, David, uh, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the energy sector a little bit. Uh, would you also put, um, uh, you know, the, the power generators in there? Yes, we would. I mean, you, you, again, you need to see at the, 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 the level of technology which is involved and how much value added you can see uh, in those chains. So we would unchase, of course, the low-end coal-related power stations, equipment, and definitely they're going to struggle. But within all those firms, you know, all those Chinese players, you've got departments, you've got operations which are worth a lot, a lot more than what the market is pricing now. Okay. Uh, so there is room, yeah, for... for all right, Steve, you, you guys have liked the consumer stocks a lot. Just give you the final word, uh, 30 or 40 seconds or so. Can you outline uh, the bid there? I think in terms of consumer stocks, we really like the one that is focused most domestically. Uh, that ranges a lot from uh, basically down to the infants to the geriatric cares. And I think that really shows up also in, in part of the PMI report we saw yesterday, which saw the domestic picture looking a little bit better than uh, the offshore picture. All right. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Steve, especially for stepping in uh, at the last minute. We appreciate that. Uh, lots more to talk about, but uh, there'll be another day. Steve Wong, Reorient Group, and David God, Senior Fund Manager at Rothschild Asset Management. 
things in life for free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Good morning, 23 minutes after 8 o'clock, and we'd like to say good morning to Bill Nader, Executive Director for Racing at the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Uh, Bill, thanks very much for coming on Money for Nothing. You've been on uh, Hong Kong today many, many times, but I think this may be the first time on Money for Nothing. Uh, the Hong Kong Jockey Club's Executive Director of Racing, you are, and uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the business of racing ahead of uh, Global Racing Forum set to take place in Hong Kong early next week. So good morning. Good morning. What is behind, and my colleague Chris Oliver will join me for this discussion as well, uh, what is behind this push to internationalize horse racing in Hong Kong? Well, firstly, it's a big business, horse racing, and it's now becoming more uh, from a domestic footprint to an international uh, landscape where we're, if you look at even the Hong Kong Jockey Club and what's happened in the last few months, we're now selling our races to America. We're on we're in 36 million homes live on television now in America through a company called TVG, which is based in California. Um, initially, it was um, a company uh, behind uh, TV Guide, and now it's a big account wagering platform, but also a 24-hour uh, racing television network. And so our races are now televised in the United States, and people can wager in the United States on Hong Kong races where the money is transferred through commingling directly into the Hong Kong pools. So with racing going more international, particularly um, Asia, which has become a a real powerhouse in the global uh, picture of horse racing, um, it's very important uh, that we get together at these conferences, such as the Asian Racing Conference, which begins next week for the yet, 35th yet, time. Yet we saw that um, you're not particularly interested in helping Mongolia setting up a professional uh, horse racing lead. Why is that? Well, I mean, the the Asian Racing Federation will certainly, you know, the Asian Racing Federation is 20, 20 different countries, of which Hong Kong is one, and we are uh, a very important part of that. And we certainly would assist Mongolia uh, through the Federation in the structure of horse racing. I think when it came down to the question uh, whether Hong Kong horses and jockeys would participate in Mongolia, that's when we have to step back and say, well, that's not possible because we do race in Hong Kong uh, over 10 months a year. The horses don't belong to the Hong Kong Jockey Club. They belong to our, our, our members and owners and their their assets. So we can't dictate those kind of terms. And our jockeys and, and trainers are quite busy here uh, competing in Hong Kong, with the exception of a, a short break from mid-July to early September, uh, and then they have to re- begin training uh, to get ready for the new season. So that was a little bit impractical. But in terms of supporting Mongolia through the Federation, uh, that's something in terms of rules, regulations, policy, and procedures. That's something, of course, uh, Hong Kong and the Asian Racing Federation would gladly uh, lend a helping hand. So to develop this global racing league, what we're looking for is a harmonization of rules and other regulatory issues such as drug control. Will will those be discussed next week? Chris, those will be discussed. Those will be very important uh, topics because when we talk about um, drug testing, the use of medication, uh, the interference rules of when a, a horse or jockey may be penalized for interference in the running of a race, these are things that I think as a sport, and especially as we try to go international and really try to project ourselves more as a 
you know, we don't have that kind of structure as a league that maybe football or basketball or tennis or golf may have, but we need to work through the International Federation and also the Asian Racing Federation together to try to have a playing field that all customers worldwide can understand because our customers or our fans are not just spectators, they're participants. Because with racing, there's the element of wagering, where the the spectator becomes a participant in the process, where they have an investment in the outcome of the race. And so we want it to be easily understood what the rules of racing are. And certainly medication is a key part of that, because in in Asia, um, um, there's no medication allowed in a horse on race day. A horse must be free of medication. Whereas in America on on um, Sunday morning Hong Kong time, the Kentucky Derby will be run for the 140th time. There are 20 horses in the race, and all of them uh, are allowed to use medication on race day. So I think as a, as a sport, we really need to come together and um, really come to a harmonized, uh, uniformed approach of how we conduct our sport. In terms of betting, a lot of people listening to the program have heard of commingling, but they may not uh, understand it perfectly. Can you just um, explain it in a, in thirty seconds? Yeah, common. I guess the key word is common in commingling. Common pool. So there's one wagering pool and common dividends. So the the payouts are the same in Hong Kong on a Hong Kong race all across the world, whether a bet is placed in America or New Zealand or Australia or Singapore, the uh, the dividend would be the same. And why is it that in the past this wasn't the case? Well, I think jurisdictional it's jurisdictional uh, concerns. Well, in Hong Kong, it was difficult for our government to, to allow betting to take place outside of Hong Kong without Hong Kong reaching in and taxing that bet. Uh, in the last two years, uh, HAB and Finance and Inland Revenue came back to us and finally conceded the point that the bet would only be taxed in the jurisdiction in which it's placed, which is the global principle. Mm. So that was a breakthrough for us and allows us now to compete like any other country in the world um, for business outside. So now we can export that strong Hong Kong Jockey Club brand worldwide. And Hong Kong has the biggest wagering pools in the world uh, as in, uh, in terms of average betting per race. And it's great quality quality, high-integrity content. So it's going to be very desirable worldwide, and we expect that in time there will be some some real growth there. Can you see the Jockey Club playing much of a role in China? Well, we we are uh, building a training center in Changfa, which is uh, in Guangzhou, and uh, that would... um, conceivably open in the season of 2017-18. It's a training center which will support racing in Hong Kong. Uh, We would certainly lend a helping hand in developing uh, veterinary expertise to support our training center at Changfa. Um, also, uh, any any help that might be needed in in uh, the rules, uh, regulations, and policies, uh, we're happy to participate in that. But in, until China actually comes to the point where they accept and approve uh, racing, um, we'll just operate on a training center. We have um, a disease-free zone where we can move horses back and forth from Hong Kong to Changfa and back, uh, which is a breakthrough that in the past, horses that went to China needed to remain in China. Now we have a corridor where horses can travel back and forth across the border. So things are are slowly moving in a positive direction, but there's a long way to go. Bill, just a quick question. Are the number of horse owners increasing, or is it still more more, a kind of congregated sort of industry? Chris, in Hong Kong, we have about 1,200 horses. That's that's been pretty... 
pretty straight over the last decade. But the number of owners that can participate are increasing through what we call syndicates. Uh, someone can own a horse as a sole owner or as a partner, but now syndicates, uh, which are between a minimum of five people and a maximum of 50 people, allow more people to share uh, horse ownership mm-hmm. and do it you know, uh, I, you know, for, for business reasons, okay. but also for fun. Time uh, doesn't permit, so we'll have to say thank you very much. Uh, that's Bill Nader, Executive Director of Race of Racing at the Hong Kong Jockey Club, joining us here on Money for Nothing. Well, the weather today, um, as we wrap up, mainly cloudy, some sunshine expected, maximum temperature about 26. Bright periods tomorrow, thunder showers early next week. Back chat coming up next, but the news right after this. The latest news with Etienne Lamy-Smith. Ukraine's interim president, Alexander Turchinov, has issued a decree reintroducing military conscription. The move was announced as separatists took control of the regional prosecutor's office in the eastern city of Donetsk. The BBC's David Stern has more. In fact, the Ukraine had conscription until late last year, and then it was phased out. So it's a, reintroduc- a reintroduction of conscription um, after a few months. And the question really is uh, how many people are going to be called up, when they're going to be called up, and ultimately when and where they're going to be deployed. Um, it's not clear exactly if this is a, a symbolic gesture, if this is perhaps a, a, a sign that the government is trying to do something, but perhaps a sign of desperation – or if, in fact, this is something serious. And then the other question, of course, is will it make any difference? Because obviously they're facing an internal